Now we're ready. All right, if you would open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 7. And we will be reading 37 through 39. John chapter 7, 37 through 39. Okay? On the last day of the feast, the great day... Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Father, we thank you for your presence this morning by your Spirit. We thank you that your Spirit does miraculous things because he is indeed God. Pointing us to Christ, our great King and our great Savior. So this morning, Lord, let us be reminded again of this third person of the Trinity the glorious Holy Spirit who does all those miraculous works in us and in the world since Jesus has left to go back to be with the Father. Help me this morning, Lord, to say things correctly that have come from your word, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so from our passage, you can probably guess we are going to be focusing on the third person of the Trinity this morning, God the Holy Spirit. We're taking a pause from Galatians now, and after this Sunday, Pastor Joe will be speaking on another topic for several weeks. So I thought we might take this opportunity for some time to once again focus on the person who sometimes gets too little attention. Someone who really deserves lots of sermons about how desperately we need this person. A sermon to remind us of that need because this person is always pointing to, guiding us to, glorifying, reminding us of someone else other than himself. Now, Pastor Joe, you will recall, hopefully, he did a 14-week series on the Holy Spirit about two years ago, and he covered this person in excellent detail I can't possibly cover everything he did in one Sunday, so maybe we could think of today as a refresher. So these are not new things we will be speaking about today, but rather for many of you, like Peter says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. You see, me personally, to be honest, it's so often just about Jesus. Thinking about him, the man, the savior, my Redeemer, my treasure, the great I Am. So honestly, it's sometimes like this. Oh yes, and thank you too, Holy Spirit. (laughs) You know, you can think, if only Jesus were sitting next to me right now. Just imagining how awesome that would be, how great your life would be. I would never let Him go. I'd seize hold of Him like Mary Magdalene did to the risen Christ. Then you could really have a victorious life over sin full of joy following him around day and night. But then I just have to use my brain and my understanding and say, no, no, he sent the helper, the Holy Spirit. He's not just sitting next to me in the chair, but he's inside me as a believer. And Jesus, as you know, clearly and emphatically says, that's even better than him being here with us. So as we start out this morning, focusing on the Holy Spirit, let's note that we are not going to be going over spiritual gifts. When the Holy Spirit comes up, we can sometimes think we're going to be speaking about tongues or prophecy or special words or maybe even laughing or shaking or whatever. But today, I'm concerned with things like new birth, like spirit-powered evangelism, concerned about living according to the Spirit and setting minds on the things of the Spirit. Not about a mind that's set on the spirit that's life and peace. About needing not to be in the flesh, but in the spirit. Concerned that the spirit of God dwells in you. 
that by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, that you will be led by the Spirit of God and be sons of God, that you have the Spirit of adoption, that you can really cry, Abba, Father. Like Paul says, we should be being filled with the Spirit and it will bring about singing hearts and thankful hearts and sharing hearts and submitting hearts. Now, let's note something about one way people relate to or deal with the Holy Spirit. To begin with, people love to control things. This is one of the fundamental fruits of our sinful nature. We are in control, not God. We try to make God in our own image and then control that God. Don't tell me what to do. But the Father is enthroned in heaven. Jesus is at his right side. Pretty hard to control them. But here on earth, the Holy Spirit manifests the presence of God in all of his convicting, saving, sanctifying ways. We are supposed to see his effects. In fact, that's all we see, his effects. I'm a believer and I'm told he manifests when he blows like the wind. Now wind can be controlled. It can even be turned into electrical power with a wind turbine. If one believes in tongues for today, that would be a manifestation of the Spirit. I can try to control that, even though it's a gift that could only be bestowed by the Holy Spirit at His will, not mine. That's a really good one to try to control because we can make a really big deal out of that one. Now, if the Spirit were to give prophetic utterances, well, I know how to utter. I can try to control that or shaking or falling down or whatever. So we see why there can be so much chaos, so much abuse, so much weirdness when it comes to the manifestations of the Spirit. It's just sinful human nature working its way out. Thinking we are in control, not God. So we've got to be careful. Like Paul says, whatever is done in regards to the Holy Spirit, don't put out the Spirit's fire and don't grieve Him. So who is this Holy Spirit? Well, He is God, the third person of the Trinity. Just one example from Acts when Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. Peter says to him, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And then... You have not lied to man, but to God. We could, of course, go on and on with lots of examples. He has lots of names, too, in the Bible that show he is God, like the spirit of wisdom, understanding, of counsel, and might, of knowledge. He's the eternal spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of glory, the spirit of grace, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of life, the spirit of holiness, the spirit of your Father, and He is the power of the Most High. But for some reason, we often hear ourselves referring to Him as It. But of course, He is a person of the Trinity. Now, in our text this morning, we can see that Jesus first speaks about those who are thirsty, that they would come to Him and drink using water as a metaphor. Then he goes on to point to the Holy Spirit as living water and flowing rivers. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, metaphors are very necessary and useful. Since he was never in human form, like Jesus, nor can we picture him like the Father, seated on his throne with angels falling down before him. Like Jesus says to Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit, moving on a person's heart, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And of course, we should note the word used for wind is the same word used for Spirit. So, as we read here in the text, there is a feast, and Jesus is proclaiming something to the crowd. So just briefly to go through a summary, Jesus starts by appealing to all to come to him and drink if they are thirsty. That's a reference to those guilty sinners who desire to be right with God, who find they are lost and under God's righteous condemnation without Christ their Savior. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And the result of their thirst, which is a need for repentance and salvation, is they would drink, meaning to believe in me 
that is in this man saying these things, that is, in Jesus. And then the result is that out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now that sounds a bit odd because the person starts out being thirsty and in need of water, not having water. And then they have lots and lots of water after only one thing changes. So it's be thirsty, so need water, then believe in this man, then water flows, got lots of water. That's a rather abrupt change and that only comes about by believing in this man crying out at a feast. The metaphor about being thirsty and in need of drink, which only this man can provide and he will provide, seems relatively clear. But then there is something that is more difficult to understand. Statements about the heart and rivers and living water. From your believing heart, somehow rivers of water will flow, and that's not a river, but rivers. And it's not just water in those rivers, it's living water. What's that mean? Well, fortunately, this is one of those passages where the writer, John in this case, then explains exactly what is meant by these excellent metaphors because John adds, now this he said about the Spirit. That is, the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, as in future tense. Now, we need to stop for a moment and say we know the Holy Spirit was active and that people were saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit before Jesus came, before Pentecost. So this is not saying the Holy Spirit was absent until this time. So what about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Obviously, the Holy Spirit has not changed since he is the eternal God, but the manner in which he deals with humans has changed since Jesus came. When Jesus says they were to receive, he means in the full, powerful sense that was promised for the new covenant age, which was obviously nicely demonstrated at Pentecost. Now, we often think of God's absolute sovereignty over all things, all creation, that it is not wound up and put on automatic, but under God's moment-by-moment sustaining power. And so we might refer to Jesus in Colossians and say, in him all things hold together. And then in Hebrews, he upholds the universe by the power of his word. But note, the Psalms talk about the life of creation. The psalmist says, When you send forth your spirit, they are created. And in Job we read things like, The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. And also that if God should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. The Holy Spirit has always been busy doing the work of God. At the very beginning, at creation, of course, we see that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And let's notice he is therefore working in the lives of all persons, including unbelievers, by his ongoing work in the physical world. As the Israelites traveled in the wilderness, the Holy Spirit was carefully carrying out the plans of God. Like Isaiah recalls, he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, and then, like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people. So the Holy Spirit was guiding them to the promised land. And he was frequently empowering his people over the century to do remarkable things like Joshua and Gideon and Samson and even Saul. And for King David, at the very moment he was made king, it says, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And what about those people that we celebrate in Hebrews chapter 11? The great and amazing servants of God. Like Joseph, ruling over Egypt. Daniel, facing the lion's den. And Moses, leading thousands of rebellious Israelites through the scorching desert. What does it say about these guys? Pharaoh says about Joseph, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And as to Daniel, this is what they said about him. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the Spirit of the Holy God. And for Moses, 
Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. So these great men of the Old Testament served and glorified God because of the Spirit's work in them. So the Holy Spirit is empowering people to carry out the plans of God, to glorify God, to make Him known. What is the basic work of the Holy Spirit? One commentator says it's succinctly like this. The work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. So he's the one who's present to do God's work in the world. So here in our, in our text, John explains Jesus' rather mystical language about rivers of living water from your heart is all about the Holy Spirit, which is in you, that is in you believers, and this is the new covenant age, and so he is now active in the full, powerful sense. So we read things about the disciples after Pentecost. The astonished ruling council realized when listening to the disciples proclaim Christ, they were uneducated common men. So the relative rarity of the Holy Spirit's actions as we read about them in the Old Testament is immediately undone with the beginning of the New Testament. It's full speed ahead beginning with John the Baptist. As Luke reports, John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Then Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. When John the Baptist is born, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Jesus comes to be circumcised, and Simeon is in the temple, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So he blesses the baby Jesus. And then, of course, things really get moving when Jesus is baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and remains. And as Mark says, the Holy Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And even after that, Luke reports that Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And so it goes on from there, Jesus conducting his many years of ministry all by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Peter says about him, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. That is, with him by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus can say about himself, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is living his entire life on earth empowered by the Spirit. So note also what Jesus can say about himself. He whom God has sent, Jesus, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So there is such a closeness between the Holy Spirit and Jesus that they share an identity of ministry. It's like saying having the Spirit is to have Christ and to have Christ is to have the Spirit. But of course we must be careful to know they are two absolutely, totally distinct persons. But let's look at the well-known chapters in John where Jesus is coming near to his death and resurrection where he speaks repeatedly about the sending of the Holy Spirit after he departs. In that discourse, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Helper numerous times. He begins by saying, I will ask the Father and he will give you another Helper to be with you forever. So if he's sending another Helper, he must have already sent the first Helper, and obviously that is Jesus. So there is a complete intimacy of relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit works in perfect continuity with the ministry of the Son. So again in John, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That is, by the Holy Spirit. And this also. What are we told about the Father? He sends the Son and he sends the Spirit. Who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. And Jesus tells his disciples, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. Who does the teaching? Jesus teaches the disciples while he's here. And then, the Holy Spirit teaches us through both these writings of the chosen disciples and by illuminating our minds and infecting our hearts. Who is the witness given to the world? Jesus tells Pilate, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. 
But now about the world of today, Jesus tells his disciples, the Holy Spirit will bear witness about me. Who was it that was rejected? Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And the Holy Spirit, the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. So the Holy Spirit will not be known as he is in himself apart from Christ. It's in the New Testament where the personal deity of the Holy Spirit is finally on full display. He does things only God does. He has divine knowledge and of course he is repeatedly referred to in the scriptures as both a distinct and separate person of the Trinity and fully divine. And then after Jesus departs, what does Paul have to say? Lots of things. He says to begin by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Begin by faith in Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. He says, be circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. He says, we were made to drink of one Spirit, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. He says, live according to the Spirit and set your minds on the things of the Spirit, to pray at all times in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit, to worship by the Spirit, to serve in the way of the Spirit, to kill the flesh by the Spirit. So according to Paul, you should pretty much do everything in your Christian life by the Holy Spirit and his power in you. But what of the person who has no Christian life? The unbelieving person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. In other words, what the Bible says, because they are folly to him. A person like that cannot submit to God's law. They are incapable of it. Their mind is set on the flesh and is hostile to God. That person does not have the Spirit of Christ living in them. To quote Paul from the New American Standard, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They are examined and appraised. And when you are appraising things, your concern is with its real value. How much real value does it have? So a natural person will say, no value. Full of falsehoods and contradictions. Besides that, it says I'm a sinner. But they might also say, it's of some value, even a lot of value. The Bible has lots of good stories to guide us. Jesus was a good man. He taught us how to love each other. But there is serious danger in that. They will not really believe Paul who says, what is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. They won't have the proper, thir proper thirst so that they come to Jesus to drink, as our passage says this morning. But unless the veil is taken away, unless the Spirit moves in their heart, unless, as it says, they turn to the Lord, then they will not examine and appraise it properly because it is properly appraised as being of infinite value, infinite worth. Infinite worth because it leads us to the infinite one who can save us from infinite death and suffering and give us his infinite righteousness and infinite joy that is to Christ. And if a person is led like that, only then can this possibly be true. As the scripture has said, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Sometimes one might think of the Holy Spirit as one who stands quietly to the side while we worship appropriately, the Father and Son who stand front and center. We sing about the riches of the Father's mercy and we proclaim the glories of the Son. But the Holy Spirit, not so much. And when you do notice Him, He seems to just point back to the Son. When Jesus was baptized... John says he knew the Christ is the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains. And so we can say, from Mary's womb until the tomb, the Holy Spirit is with and in Jesus. And then when Jesus is preparing to leave, he says, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And will you note that when the wind blows in a person's heart, when new birth comes, when the Holy Spirit moves, what happens? It is Jesus who is glorified, who becomes the center of attention. You must be born again, says Jesus. Then he states, 
whoever believes in me, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, may have eternal life. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is essentially that of uniting us to Christ and all that we then inherit from that union. So Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And that shows us our union to Christ by the Spirit. So the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit removes us from the union with sin and Satan and gives us life in Christ. Our soul is united with Christ as a spouse with her husband. God saved us. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now let's keep in mind that our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit is grounded in his union with us in his humanity. That's not mysticism or becoming God. Rather, the goal of the Spirit is transforming us into the image of God as seen, expressed, and lived out in Christ's humanity. He was the perfect human. Yes. So our transformation, our sanctification, is so that we believers can become more human, not less human. More truly and fully human, like the perfect human Jesus Christ. Like Paul says, And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The favorite passage of many, God works all things together for good for those who are called by Him. That's a powerful, wonderful truth. But immediately after that, it says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, And if that sounds good too, hopefully it's only after realizing we need to swallow hard and sit up in the chair because that requires crucifixion of our flesh constantly. That's not a popular way today to describe the Christian life. But Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But otherwise... If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Seems pretty straightforward. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. But by Paul's account, it's so hard and so bad, even the apostle can't stop doing what he doesn't want to do, but keeps on doing the very thing he hates. He says, I don't understand my own actions. Finally, he admits he's a wretch. Who's going to deliver me? Answer, Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life has set him free in Christ. And in Christ, he's going to walk according to the Spirit. So that by the Spirit, he's going to put to death the sinful misdeeds of the body. And that's what Paul says we must do. And that Spirit that's adopted us as sons of the Father... He does such a miracle in us that we cry, Abba, to our Father in heaven. Abba, help me walk through life with this body of death, my sinful flesh. By your Spirit, you say, is walking with me. We cry, Abba, Father. Cry. Not moan. Cry. Same word as the blind man who wanted his sight. Same word as Jesus crying to the Father as he died on the cross. Same as our passage today when Jesus stood up and cried out in a loud voice to the crowd. Yes, Father, you you promised to help me in my weakness. Yes, okay, we can do this. That all-powerful Spirit is the one that hovered over the water in creating the vastness of the world. The one who raised Jesus from the dead. Okay, and if I don't even know how to ask for what I need to walk by the Spirit, how to pray as I ought, you'll intercede for me through my groanings, if that's all I've got. That instinct to cry out 
should be like a child who falls down hurt and says, Daddy, help me! When I was first a Christian in more charismatic surroundings, now and then people would say they had a word from me, for me, from the Lord. I'm not sure if they really were. I don't really remember any of them. Step one. As we finished praying, a brother said to me, there's a word for you. Just walk. That's all. Doesn't sound too profound. Just walk with God by His Spirit. Just walk. And I still remember only that one to this day. I guess that's the Christian version of Nike. Just do it. Just walk in the obedience of faith. Really, each day has enough trouble of its own. So just walk by the Spirit and you'll look back and see all the hundreds and then the thousands of miles He's done that with and in you. So let God get the glory. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And may the God of peace Himself Sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He's the one who keeps order in our life as we yield to Him. And as to order, well, at the beginning, God took what was not in order, the Spirit hovering over the water, and brought order. God forming each and everything down to minute perfection. And that is what continues today. God sustains all things by his powerful word, the word, Jesus. Every star and every molecule, every galaxy and every electron. Similarly, he gives his law and sends his spirit and the two work together in believers to bring order rather than chaos. And you can clearly see what happens when God is taken out of the way. If the Holy Spirit is not being grieved, if the people have the obedience that comes from faith, you have the least moral and societal chaos and suffering. But even when the Holy Spirit is rejected and only the law remains, you have some fumes that keep order for a while. But when God is wholly rejected, when both God himself and his law are fully rejected, you have descending chaos and suffering. And so we are living through this today right here in our lives. We are witnessing it ourselves. The problems and moral chaos we see around us are not ultimately due to bad politicians or new thinking. It's the absence of the Holy Spirit having given new birth and now residing in the changed hearts of people. That, by the way, might be tied closely to a lack of of a true gospel being preached so the Holy Spirit can do His work in those hearts. We call David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Please, please, please take not your Holy Spirit from me. Want some chaos in your life? In the world? Just ignore and reject the Holy Spirit. What's He do? John says, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He better be doing those three things in us all the time or we too are destined for chaos and suffering. Now, when he's ignored, it's a really big deal. It's saying a definitive and absolute no to God. It's so serious that Jesus says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit in calling all to salvation. Can a person make a more serious error? So now in our text, before we talk about these rivers of living water, 
we should point briefly to a spring of water. And that happens with the Samaritan woman at the well. There is a sinful woman who comes to the well for water. And whenever we hear the Bible talking about water, if we know the scriptures, we can often anticipate a metaphor. We are thirsty for water, for God. We are baptized in water. Jesus walks on the water. Water becomes wine. Husbands love their wives by the washing of water with the word. Water and blood come from the crucified Jesus. Water floods the earth and cleanses it. God makes rivers in the desert. Water in the wilderness for his chosen people. And the Bible ends by calling salvation the water of life. So the tired out woman, tired out from living with five husbands, and tired out Jesus from walking in the heat, come to water. And Jesus tells her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that spring of water she gets is new birth. The Holy Spirit comes to reside in her and it wells up to eternal life. That is a spring of life within her. She gets what Jesus is saying in our passage this morning. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And what is the result of that? one of those rivers of living water started flowing right away. She goes back to town, tells them about this man, and many of it says, believed in him. What does she tell them? Come, see a man. That's a compact presentation of the gospel. Come, see a man. That's what we are telling people. Come, see a man. And when you do, and when you do see him with new eyes of your heart mercifully given to you by the Holy Spirit, you will look at him and say, that's the one I've been looking for all my life. That's him. He's holy and I really am wretched. He is God and I'm not. He's my Savior and my religion is not. Paul sure did when he fell off the horse. That was a quick change of heart. Who are you, Lord? And when that happened to him, it didn't take long for him to change his tune and start telling people, come see a man. Yes, because within three days he's preaching. And within days they're trying to kill him. That's a man who is nicely described by our passage this morning where Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Someone with a new Christ-centered heart who has been born of the Holy Spirit. Now, at the time of our passage this morning, it is, as John says, the last day of the feast, the great day. That is, it's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, a very important and spectacular feast. The ceremonies of this feast look back to the wilderness, wanderings, and toward the coming of the Messiah toward the hope for fulfillment of things like what Ezekiel said. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So during the feast, water was taken from the pool of Siloam and poured out at the temple altar each day. It reminded the Jews of Moses and the water that came from the rock. In keeping with Zechariah's prophecies, it became associated with the expected triumph of God and the blessings upon the Jews when prophecies like Isaiah's would also be fulfilled. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
So the water ceremony was a big deal on the last day of the feast when the Jews walked around the altar seven times. And so Jesus makes an obvious connection here when as we read, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. It was at this time the Jews were focused on the water ceremony and the expectation of God's blessings and ultimately the Messiah. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then this statement. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So when the Holy Spirit comes, as he did later at Pentecost, that's the source of those rivers of living water. But it's not just the Holy Spirit that's going to be flowing like a river. It's the effects of the Holy Spirit in believers that's going to be flowing rivers, or apparently should be. Belief in Jesus is a spring welling up to eternal life, but then, then we have rivers flowing. And how about those rivers? When the Holy Spirit first came at Pentecost, Peter the fearful becomes Peter the fearless. Do you think Peter knew before the Spirit came that day he would be standing up before the crowd with such boldness, fully outfitted with the full armor of God? Did he have that sermon prepared ahead of time? I don't think so. But he quotes a long passage from Joel exactly. Then another from Psalm 16. Then another passage from Psalm 110. So was what happened with Peter exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Yes, but get this very important point. For that river to come gushing out of Peter, that scripture had to be already in him. So it's got to be like that or it won't work. Now that full armor of God only has one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And if your sword is unprepared, it will be dull or too heavy to use, fumbled or ineffective. You'll be outdone by those who challenge you. So I insist on saying to you, as you sit here week by week at Sovereign Grace, and you hear the Bible torn apart and examined by a microscope, I'm speaking of Joe, not me, you are being royally blessed. You are being prepared for such a time as this right now, like Esther. Like Pedro and his military training, crucial and indispensable for him not to be taken out by the enemy. Like Sergio and his police training, ready. Your sword should be finely sharpened, ready to put to immediate use. There was plenty of boldness in speaking of Christ after the Holy Spirit came, and out of those hearts flowed rivers of living water. Those Sanhedrin, they're flogging, they're jailing. No match for Peter and John. We obey God rather than men. We can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And of course, Stephen dies for his final proclamation. You always resist the Holy Spirit and now you have betrayed and murdered the righteous one. So how are you going to do all that? To channel all that power that's in you, believer, you're going to take your sword of the Spirit and go. I love this quote by Bruce Ware. Though the Holy Spirit is God, equal in essence to the Father and the Son, yet His role is consistently to defer honor, to seek to bring about the glory of another. And that's what the Holy Spirit did with Jesus. The Holy Spirit will always defer to another, give glory to Jesus Christ. Now, if the Spirit guides and directs our lives, it makes sense that we should be like that. 
not just consistently deferring honor to Christ and try to bring about his glory, but also what Paul says. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. But unfortunately, Paul so also laments, laments, referring to the church around him, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. We might want to note what happened to the church after Paul was converted, that there was a time of peace. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. But I'm wondering if the church, myself included, can get a little too much of that Holy Spirit comfort and peace when there's no Pauls running around. So ultimately, what is our life about as believers. Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it should be our goal to have that righteousness by faith and actions, peace with God and each other, and joy. And why? Paul immediately adds, Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God. So if we want to please God, we need to live righteously, pursuing peace and pursuing joy. And that's all in the Holy Spirit that's taken residence in you. And he's going to show his effects in you when out of your heart comes rivers of living water. Not a stream, a creek, or a brook. He says rivers. That part about joy in the Holy Spirit, maybe that seems to be lacking at times. But once again, as usual, the gospel is countercultural about joy. After Peter and John were under threat of death and then badly beaten for preaching, it says they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And Paul, he's got lots of it. When he's on a missionary trip, he says, Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. But he finishes by saying, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. That makes no sense. Unless it is joy given by the Holy Spirit in the glorifying of Jesus. And the result of Paul's efforts did the same thing to the Thessalonians. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And what's Paul say to new believers about himself? as the result of his efforts? For what is our hope or joy or crown? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. John, he feels the same way. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So when out of their hearts those rivers of living water came and it caused them to give their lives to open hearts and minds by the gospel, it showed the kingdom of God is in fact a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Everyone wants to have some significance in their lives, to make some kind of a difference, even the unredeemed. Pride and fame, possessions and power, Those are great examples of sinful earthly significance. But for us who know there is a new heaven and a new earth coming, we must pursue a different significance. There was a a Christian man I worked with for many years who had a common saying when he got frustrated or tired and worn out. It's all going to burn up. It's all going to burn up anyway. He's mostly or at least half joking. But yes, what is unseen is eternal. And the most significance we can have here as narrow path-walking believers is in focusing on what is not staying here. What's not left behind. That is, in what's eternal. As far as I can tell, that's human souls. 
I can't think of anything else. And that's got to be a big part of what Jesus is talking about, those flowing rivers of living water out of a believer's heart. What the Holy Spirit is doing in and through us. The very, very end of the Bible. Just before it says, don't mess with or change these scriptures. The last thing he says, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. That's what he ends with. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Bride says, come in every possible way. Like Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us, His Bride. So Paul declares, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the Gospel. The bride says, Come. Come see a man. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. The Spirit, yes, the Holy Spirit and the Bride of Christ, you and me, we say, Come. Father, I thank you that you have not left us as orphans. But you have seen to it that that profound miracle has taken place in those who are yours, who have believed in you, that the Holy Spirit has come to take residence in us. That you yourself, Jesus, have said you will come to us by that Holy Spirit. And by your mercy, you have made us who are yours thirsty for you. And you have given us that living water. We need you desperately to do that. That constant work in us by the Holy Spirit. Teaching us sin and righteousness and judgment. And Lord, we need you to awaken us each and every day to have those rivers of living water flowing from us to a dying world. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His riches beyond tracing out. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.